The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks Scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly 10 million dollars was all gone It's just unbelievable Hide your money in your old rich men Because <laughs> she is on the prowl Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer On the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Hi, Family Secrets listeners. It's Danny, here to share another incredible conversation with you. The second in our series of live episodes recorded in January during my paperback tour. I sat down with author and podcast host Gretchen Rubin, who interviewed me about my own family secret. We also talked about the still almost totally unregulated world of sperm and egg donation and why the era of recreational DNA tests could mean the end of secrets for anyone who wondering where they really come from. Stay tuned for the second half of my conversation with Gretchen. We opened the discussion up to our audience who had incredibly moving stories of their own to share. That's out tomorrow. My first question, Danny, is, I mean, you're a writer. You were having this intense experience. Did you know from the beginning that you would write about it? I really did. I really really did. did. It it wasn't knowledge like I thought, ooh, goody. (laughs) My next book, it was more... My life is turned upside down. This is great copy, right? right? That's what Nora Ephron says. Everything is copy. And I even had writer friends saying like, boy, this is going to be an amazing book. And I was almost insulted initially. Like, this doesn't feel like a book. This is my life that's been so upended. But as a writer, I have always... Um, written in order to understand what I feel, what I know, what I think, 
what I, the world around me. It's how I, it's literally how I, how I process. And so I began writing very quickly, even just scribbling on index cards because I wanted to remember what it was that I was feeling because my, um, my emotional life was moving sort of so rapidly. Um, I don't know that we can remember what shock feels like, you know, months later or that kind of thing. But there also was a ticking clock because I was aware that anything that I might learn about the truths of my identity, about what my parents had known or not known, about what the world of medicine was like at the time of my conception, literally the story of my life and how I came to be, anyone who still knew anything about that was going to be elderly. And so my, my husband and I, like, forgive me for this, but my, my husband and I had a running joke because I'm, I'm a writer. I don't like picking up the phone and calling people who don't want to hear from me. Um, I'm, I would never make a good investigative journalist that way. And if you're reaching out to people in their 90s, they probably don't have email, which was always like the writer's first refuge is I can just send an email. It's uh, the easier way to go about it. So I would be in the position of having to pick up the phone and call people, and I was dragging my feet. And my husband, Michael, would say, he may be dead by Friday. Yeah. 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 So that guy made you. That, that definitely got me going. Yes. Um, and one of the things that was interesting was as you approached your biological father and he and his family became sort of comfortable with connecting with you, how did they respond to the book and also sort of the two stages of the book, because it's one thing to be like, hey, there's going to be this book. And then it's like, hey, this book is actually like a huge runaway bestseller. And now I have a podcast and maybe there's going to be a TV show. And I'm giving lectures all around the country. I mean, it's one, he may not have, they may not have conceived of what the book might become. So how did they, how have they grappled with that? Well, to begin with, I was transparent with them from the time that we were conversing with each other, that that I would be writing about it. I mean, all they would need to I do is think know. That's a good example. Like, do the right thing right away, because if you had just sprung a book on them, yeah, slid that by. Yeah, and also I think energetically it wouldn't have it would have polluted the air between us because I would have really been secretly taking notes. I was never doing that. I was, and anyone who knew anything about my history as a writer that I've always written about family secrets. I've always written about identity. These have been my subjects. And then it turns out that I was the family secret and that my identity has been upended. Of course, I'm going to write about it. So I was transparent about it from the beginning. Um, What I did when I finished the book and it was really done and ready to be turned into my publisher is I sent it to them. I sent it to my biological father. And I should note, that's pretty unusual. Usually with oh. memoirs, they're ve- they really don't do that. They no. really d- it's unusual to allow someone the opportunity to weigh in. Well, it's a little dangerous because it's like giving <laughs> someone wet clay. And I'm like, here, you can shape this now. It, it, it can feel like um, it's giving permission to really kind of make changes. What I was interested in mostly was that he felt that his privacy was protected. Um, I had taken great pains to protect his privacy. It was very important to me to do that. Um, But I wanted him to feel that his privacy was protected. I wanted to make sure that there was nothing I had missed. Uh, And I I guess I wanted his blessing, too. I wanted him to like it. 
I wanted him to feel that it accurately reflected what had happened between us, but mostly it was that I wanted his privacy to be protected. And so the, the second part of this, which is that um, the book came out and did strike a chord and did start to be a book that you would know about, you know, that you, you couldn't really avoid knowing about. I was on a lot of TV shows and there were a lot of pieces written and there was a big piece in Time magazine right before the book came out. So the question of like, how did that feel to um, people who were in the book, even with their identities protected, but they were in the book, they've been wonderful. And I think actually proud, I would say, and um, in a certain way, very interested in following along. So that's another way in which this has been a kind of remarkable, um, I, you know, one of the things that I've said often since the book came out, and I've met so many people who are having these discoveries of various kinds because of easy, accessible DNA testing and the impact that it's having on our society and on so many families. My story is a, is a, a good one. Not all of the stories are easy. A lot of them are quite painful. There's pain in all of these stories of discovery. I mean, it was a very, very hard thing for me to metabolize that my dad, uh, who raised me and who I adored and who loved me into being and is a huge part of why I am the person that I am, um, that he wasn't my biological father and that I had never known it. That was really hard. But then there have been so many gifts in the wake of this discovery, and one of them uh, really is that my biological father and his family have been as kind and as open as they have been. Well, um, I, I have a podcast called Happier with Gretchen Rubin, and Elizabeth, my co-host, and I interviewed you um, for our book, book club. And one of our listeners asked a question that I thought was really interesting, which was, do you think that your biological father and his family would have been as willing to meet with you if they couldn't have seen that you were so accomplished? Like, they could just look you up and see. Like, and then I remember in your first letter to him, you say... I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm a writer. You know, you, you sort of say, I'm an ordinary, stable person with a good life, a rich life, but he could also look that up and see that you were very accomplished. Do you think if you hadn't been so Googleable, they might not have been willing to open themselves up to you? One of the things that I'm hearing a lot um, as I've been traveling for the last year since Inheritance came out um, is that whenever there is a situation like this in a family of any kind, of someone sending an email or calling or writing a letter saying, I'm confused, I mean, but I have this information, I think we're related, I think I'm your biological daughter, or I think I'm your half-sibling, or you know, I got these results from my DNA test and they point to some kind of genetic connection the very first response that across the board, every family that I have encountered um, has is feeling threatened. Every single one. And I think it's hardwired into us. It's a primal reaction. It's a primitive reaction. It's like, you know, we're sitting here in a synagogue. It's like, it's the outsider. 
You know, it's it's the it's the it's the outlier. It's the stranger in our midst. That kind of feeling. But it's more than a stranger. It's somebody who might have a claim, and exactly. that's even more threatening in a way. And and the threat usually um, goes straight to financial. What do you want from me? You want my money, um, even if it's you know I I know a story where the person who made the discovery was a extremely wealthy person. Uh, and the, the the discovered biological family was not, but there's still that feeling of what do you want from me? I I, I, um, I have nothing for you. And the times that families are able to get past that, I mean, it's just my I mean, my biological family. It was the same thing. That was the first response was what do you want? No, no, I I donated anonymously. I signed a contract. I was guaranteed an- anonymity. You know, you're, you're, you're intruding into my life. Yes, I was Googleable. I also, when I initially wrote to him, I was very conscious of wanting him to understand that I was a human being, you know, a wife, a mother living in Connecticut, you know, that I was, um, that I came in peace. Um, but at the same time, on my website, the very first thing you would have seen at that time on the home page of my website would have been a picture of me with Oprah with her arm around me because I had recently been on Super Soul Sunday. Now, that is both good news and bad news. <laughs> and I really think, as someone very concerned about his privacy, that the idea that Oprah could come... Spring knocking, out. Like, yes, spring out from the bushes with a microphone. Yeah. Like, We've all seen those episodes, yeah. So I, I do think, and, and, and also he started, I think, digging into my history a little bit as a writer and seeing that I've written about family all my life. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I've never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in in a different aspect of my life now. So... How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune into what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations 
that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So talk for a moment about what this was a you write about this so beautifully in the book and it's it's the moment it's this tremendously thrilling terrifying moment when you and your husband and, and your husband's like here we go here we go and you're opening up the page and there's a little video of him and you see that it's your father and it's your features and your husband says oh my goodness he even runs a question and answer session the way you do. And you recognize yourself in his gestures. I mean, talk about what that was like after all this time of feeling the sort of sense of not quite fitting in and now suddenly seeing your face in someone else's face. I think it will stand forever as the most surreal moment of my life because it wasn't so much looking at someone who looked like me and gestured like me it was also realizing that I hadn't had that familiarity before. Uh. And, you know, when we grow up in our biological family and we know it's our biological family, there's that thing that we do just as human beings. It's sort of like, oh, he walks like Uncle Mo. You know, oh, he has Grammy's nose. Or, oh, you know, we don't even think it. It's just when we know that we're part of a biological family, that is part that familiarity is part of being part of a biological family. If we are adopted, 
And we've always known that we were adopted and it's been woven into our identity from the time that we're very small. Then we know why we don't look like our biological family or why there is this sense of unfamiliarity. In, in adoption literature, there's a beautiful phrase called um, genealogical bewilderment. We know why there is this genealogical bewilderment. But if our identity has actually not been told to us, as you know, our identities are formed by the stories we're told from the time we're very small. And if the story that we're told is, this is your biological family, but in my case, on my father's side, it was not. I did not have that familiarity. I did not have that recognition. In fact, I looked completely unlike a Shapiro. And, and that was a big part of the story of my life, people constantly telling me that I didn't look Jewish, that I didn't look like my father's family. Um, I was constantly mistaken for, you know, just being not, not, not being Jewish. And uh, meanwhile, and I would come back with raised kosher, you know, went to a yeshiva, uh, spoke, spoke fluent Hebrew, Hebrew yeah. you know, like, don't talk to me about not being Jewish. Um, but it was the story of my life. So when I saw my biological father's face for the first time and he was lecturing, for those of you who haven't read the book yet, he was standing by, you know, behind a lectern, delivering a lecture on medical ethics. <laughs> and... You can't make it up. You can't. No, I couldn't. I changed identifying details, but that wasn't one of them. That would be cheating. That, would, that wouldn't have been fair. Um, but there was... I, I saw his gestures. And when I saw his gestures, I recognized my gestures. And that was like a heart-stopping moment because it was seeing the familiar in a stranger. He was a stranger. But it was also like I wasn't looking at a video of a fireman. You know, I wasn't looking at a video of something I've never done. I stand behind podiums all the time, and I deliver lectures all the time, and I run Q&As all the time. So he was doing something that was very familiar to me so I could see, I could see myself in that way. Well, and speaking of medical ethics, it's interesting, since the book has come out, and since it's, it's made such an impression on people, you have become sort of the voice of kind of all the people who are experiencing what we might be call like technology-enabled um, secret discovery. And you are starting to talk to people about medical ethics and bioethics. How has that been for you to kind of be pulled into this expertise um, and, and also, in kind of a larger way, you are also sort of a, a person where many people who have secrets like this want to confide the secret in you. And now with your, your podcast family, Secrets, that's given you a way to sort of give voice to that. Um, how has it been for you to sort of be thrust into these roles by what happened to you personally? You know, it's interesting. The other night I was um, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and I was having... Um, an onstage conversation with Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, who is the leading expert on trauma um, in, in, in the world. And one of the things that Dr. van der Kolk writes about in his book, which is called The Body Keeps the Score, he writes about the necessity when you've experienced a trauma of some sort, one of the ways that people recover best is if they're able to take action, um, if they're not in some way trapped either physically or 
emotionally. And I was reading uh, Dr. Vanderhoek's book and I was thinking about what I was able to do in the wake of my discovery. I was able to do something with it. First by, I mean, my journey and my book are the same in many ways. I was trying to understand what it meant that my dad wasn't my biological father. Both of my parents were dead. I was trying to piece together as best as I could what they had known and whether they had consciously kept this from me. I was, you know, there were so many mysteries that I was kind of trying to untangle. And I, as a writer, that's what I do. That's, that's my toolbox. And then the book came out. And from the very first event, it was clear that people were coming who had their own stories and had their own discoveries. And, and they were from all different kinds of discoveries and different roles in the discovery process. There were older men who were coming to my events and I would realize that they had been sperm donors and they were trying to figure out how to deal with the fact that they might be contacted. I would see couples sitting together and looking kind of stricken and I would realize, oh, you have donor-conceived children who don't know and you're trying to figure out what to do about that. And then I would see many people who were, had recently discovered that they were adopted or recently discovered half-siblings or recently discovered uh, fathers who discovered children that they had never known about, um, adopted um, children discovering birth parents and vice versa. All of this was happening. And I think that for me, becoming, having this voice and ending up having you know, a, a megaphone in a way has been the action mm -hmm. that has allowed me to process, metabolize, and heal from what was really a very shocking um, discovery. And in terms of the bioethics of this, I mean, we're in this moment. Where Can I ask a question, just show of hands? How many people have bought a DNA test in this room? Yeah. A lot of you, yeah. So the numbers are, I think, last year was 12 million kits were sold. This year, I think it was a little bit, they were expecting it to be higher, and I don't think it was, at least. I read an article about 23andMe laying off some of its staff because they were expecting a bigger explosion. But I can tell you that of those many millions of people who are gifting, families gifting each other at Hanukkah and Christmas, you know. That's <laughs> what I, my mother-in-law gave it to me for Christmas. So. Right, right. Um, I saw on Twitter recently somebody posted something like, you know all, all those people who, who got their DNA test for the holidays? Easter's going to suck. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there are hundreds of thousands of people who are making versions of this discovery and the bioethics community, I mean, I've spoken at Harvard and at Stanford. I was just at Johns Hopkins. I'm going to Penn, speaking with the head of the program at Columbia. It is one of the, I mean, we have many ethical issues of our time, um, but it's one of the big ones um, because what does it mean that the science has changed everything and that men and women too now because of egg donation who were promised anonymity no longer have it 
Secrets are no, are no longer possible. There's a huge stream of people who are making really difficult identity-shifting discoveries. And the question of what is our moral responsibility to each other, I think one of the reasons why inheritance has resonated so much is because I have become an expert on this from the inside. From the inside this of This isn't experience. an abstract uh, right. it's thought not, problem. It's not a research project. It's, um, and you know, one of the things that happens that I feel that I can give voice to is, for example, in the adoption community, I think a lot of people thought, who hadn't read the book yet, thought that I was saying that nature is all important, right? It mattered to me to meet my biological father. I actually had people saying to me, well, like, why would that matter? And it was usually people who grew up with their biological parents, you know, who just couldn't kind of imagine themselves in my shoes. But one of the things that I feel like I'm here to say is my mother, who was my biological mother, I actually double-checked. Um, she and I weren't close. I never felt connected to her. We were just kind of oil and water. She was my biological mother. My dad, who it turns out is not my biological father, is like a, a, a soul connection to me. Um, he died when I was 23 years old. And there hasn't been a day that's gone by that I haven't spoken to him and thought about him. My books have been for him in a certain way. I've written about him. I've wrestled with him. I've tried to understand him. He's um, on the cover of your book now. He is now on the paperback that you all have. That is a picture of myself as um, a little girl with my dad. And you can see the connection between us. I love that picture so much because there's so much unfettered joy. It matters not at all that he's not my biological father. It, 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 it didn't matter then. I'm sure it didn't matter to him. I didn't know. The problem is not knowing. Um, and that's what I really kind of feel like I am trying to give voice to because there was a huge amount of secrecy in those days. It just, it's what was counseled. It was what was believed. Everyone felt that they were doing the right thing. And, and I've come to understand one of the gifts of this process for me is there's this great term... Um, in, in ethics, which is retrospective moral judgment. We can't judge the past by the standards of the present. And when I first found this out, I really thought, how could they? How could they? How could they? Everyone has a right to know their own identity as much as possible. How could they have kept this from me? My journey was to get to a place of imagining my parents as people as people of their time, as people who existed before me. And that's a great gift. We don't often get to do that about our parents. We don't think of our parents as people separate from us. And I had to think of them as this traumatized, deeply ashamed couple who were childless in the late 1950s and early 1960s. Male infertility was so shameful it didn't exist. You couldn't get a doctor to diagnose it. And... That they, was they that just, beautiful scene with the rabbi when you go to find out, sort of describe that, where he says, no, I would have thought that if my wife had wanted a baby, you know, all honor to him for having been willing to do this. That was such a beautiful moment. Explain that a little bit. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah, so one of the elderly people that I reached out to early on was Rabbi Haskell Lukstein, who is one of the sort of venerable Orthodox rabbis in Manhattan. Um, his father founded the Ramaz School. Um, 
his father and my grandfather knew each other. Uh, Haskell and my father, uh, he was a bit younger than my father, but they knew each other, and they were in the same social circles. And I went to see him in part because I thought, maybe my, my father was an Orthodox Jew. Maybe he would have gone, maybe he would have sought rabbinic advice. And if he had, maybe he would have gone to Rabbi Luxtein. I was looking for anyone who could tell me, yes, I spoke to your father about this. Or, um, but instead what happened was I explained what had happened. I explained my discovery. I explained what I knew. Um, and Rabbi Luxtein, once he understood it, his immediate response was, kol hakavod to your father. All the honor. If, God forbid, it had been my wife and I who had struggled with this, I would have done the same thing. And what was so interesting to me over the course of my journey... Which was exactly not what you were expecting. It was not, because I had read the, the halacha. I had read the, the body of Jewish law around this stuff, and it was... It called um, sperm donation an abomination, which was a terrible thing to read. Because then I felt like, well, am I, an, an, I, am I an abomination? Did my father think of me as an abomination? It was awful. And both Rabbi Luxtein and another elderly person who I visited and sought out was my, my Aunt Shirley, my father's younger sister, who is devout. Both of them were so completely willing to throw the rule book out. You know, it was so interesting to me. Like, I thought, like, yes, there's the law, and then there's the humanity. Like, yes, there's the law, and then there's the what's right. And I saw that with the two most um, religious people whose insights I saw. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Uh, thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in exactly. to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, right. which is different than empathy, yeah. right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to a really good cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, one of the things, you make a point in the book that you felt that when you were approaching your biological father, you were, you were fortunate that you were the first. Because in many cases, when these secrets come out, they come out in large groups. And that's, that makes the bioethics of it and the human problem of it more complex. Um, I'm sure people are curious, have you found any other half-siblings? And, um, like, and, and how do we think about these people who find each other? Some grow up knowing each other, but then some are find out about it much later. Yeah, so there's a, a number of different layers to that. Um, no, I have not um, discovered any other biological half-siblings, um, which makes me fairly unusual. Most people who are making these discoveries are discovering significant numbers of half-siblings because often donors donated over a, a long period of time or in more recent years because of frozen sperm, there could be half-siblings that are generations apart, right? And I have regularly encountered uh, people who make a discovery like this and then discover that they have 47 half-siblings, 23 half-siblings. Some cases, half-siblings numbering in the three digits. Yeah. My sister's writing partner is a single mother by choice, and there are 23 known uh, donor siblings in, that, in their group. And it's getting, you know. But one of the things that you're bringing up that is interesting and sort of different from sort of the older generations where this is, these discoveries are happening is that today, for the most part, 
people understand that it's important for their children to know, you know, to be told the truth from an early age. There are tools, uh, there are books uh, that can be read to children, you know, that have illustrations of trees and seeds and leaves and, you know, just ways for children to process this information. And there's also much more transparency, led, I think, initially by the same-sex community where there's got to be somebody else, right? Mm -hmm. So they've got to tell. And then there are communities of these kids who grow up who are half-siblings with, biologically with each other who get to know each other and it's all this sense of normalcy around it. It's, it's a different way of making family and of, of processing this and that's a beautiful thing um, because, it's, because it's out in the open and there's no shame involved. As soon as there is this secrecy, this non-disclosure, there's shame underneath it. There's shame because it means that it, why does it need to be kept a secret? Now, in my generation and generations older than me and a little bit younger than me, it was, I mean, I'm constantly, people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and older are making these discoveries and then discovering 47 half-siblings. What does it mean to be related when there are more of you than there ever would be in a traditional family? Uh, so the last question I want to ask you, and then we're going to open it up for questions, just um, coming off of that. So you have your podcast, Family Secrets, which if you haven't listened to, you should just run and listen. It's so interesting. You highlight, you do long interviews with people who have a secret. And then you've also been doing this fascinating thing where people, as mentioned in the introduction, people can call in and just sort of like tell their secret. So given all of the thinking that you've done about this, kind of what's your bottom line about how to think about a, a secret? Like, how do you know when it's your secret to keep, when it's not your secret to keep? How do you, how do you think about secrets? It's so individual. Um, there are, you know, it's interesting. I actually um, did a bonus episode with the therapist and writer, Lori Gottlieb, um, between my first season and second season, and I asked Lori if she thinks it's ever okay to keep a secret, and her response, I was asking her as a therapist, and her response was, really, no, never. Secrets are simply just toxic. Um, I think it was Carl Jung who referred to them as um, toxic poison, which is kind of redundant, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> it's occurred to me. Yeah. Um, I think when a secret is revealed is as important as what the secret is or that it's revealed. I think there are times in um, someone's life where they're too vulnerable to handle the information. Um, I feel very fortunate that when I discovered this secret, I was very much a mature adult. I had a family. I had stability. I had my life's work. Um, I was in a place where... I was as grounded as I had ever been. If I had made that discovery when I was in my 20s and I was not in that kind of shape at all, I don't know what it would have done to me. So I think we have to take care with the secrets that we hold if we're holding them. And yet at the same time, because of the combination of the internet and... Now, I remember you said that on your podcast one time in passing. You're like, well, with the internet, 
there, there's not going to be any more secrets. It's well, like, it's hard heading, now. Yeah, we're heading into an era that I really do think is the, the, the end of the secret because, you know, it's, it's a misunderstanding that people have that if, if they haven't had their DNA tested, it means that they couldn't be discoverable. Um, in any family, I mean, I've had people who were donors say to me, well, I don't want to, I'm not going to do my DNA testing because I don't want to be found. It's like, well, your nephew could do it your first cousin, your second cousin, even your third cousin could do it, and somebody would be able to figure that out. Your, your grandchild could do it. It's, it's, the, the, it's the unintended consequence of this development in science, and what's complicated, um, many things are complicated about it, but there's secrecy and then there's privacy. Right? And they're very connected, and they're not the same thing. And you know, I think we can agree that privacy is important and we we want to have privacy um and secrecy i think is toxic but there's you know there are families now in which there are some people keeping secrets from others because some people want to know and some people don't want to know um and it's 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 very complicated so i think it's as individual as um, the person and the family that it's happening to For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in exactly. to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, right. which is different than empathy, yeah. right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.